14, 15, 16, prime, 18, prime, 20, 21, 22. West Virginia Collegiate Institute is the best school for Negroes in the state. It's the only school past the eighth grade anywhere near here. Isosceles, scalene, equilateral, rhombus, trapezoid. Catherine's in the sixth grade. They want to take her early. Tetrahedron. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'm your host, Jeff Kelly, and it looks like this is going to be another episode where I'm here alone, doing it all by my lonesome, but that's okay. It's the first Monday of the month, and that means we're going to talk about a film based on a true story. And today's film is Hidden Figures from 2016. Hidden Figures, of course, is based on a true story about three African-American women who helped NASA put a man into space. It's loosely based on the book by Margot Lee Shutterly from the same year, and I mean loosely based. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. Now, the first thing I did when I saw this film was to look up the three main white characters in the film. Ed Harris, who's played by Kevin Costner, Vivian Mitchell, played by Christine Dunst, and Paul Stanford, as played by Jim Parsons. Not that I wasn't curious about the three black women in the movie, but I knew they were based on real historical people. I just wondered about the others. And quickly I found out that Al, Vivian, and Paul are all fictional. Al Harris is Catherine Johnson's supervisor, the director of the Space Task Group. And he was a composite character, based on many people that came and went. According to the NASA website, The Al Harrison character, played by Kevin Costner, is largely based on Robert C. Gilruth, the head of the Space Task Group at Langley Research Center and later the first director of what is now the Johnson Space Center in Houston. However, the organizational structure of the Space Task Group was much more complicated and was changing quickly during the time period when the movie takes place. For clarity in the movie, the management structure is compressed and the composite character, Al Harrison, was created. I also read somewhere that they couldn't get permission to use Robert C. Gulruth's name. I'm not sure if that's true. The other two, Paul Stanford and Vivian Mitchell, were fictional characters, but were created to reflect the general attitude and racism towards the three black women, or black people in general. In making a biopic such as this, making composite characters is understandable. It makes the film much more digestible for the average viewer. When the story takes place over a large period of time, to be 100% historically accurate, every other scene the viewer would be introduced to new characters at a rapid pace. It would be confusing. And it would take away from the story that's trying to be told. This story is about these three remarkable women, 
and to give the viewer a sense of their lives and what it was like to be in their shoes, to show their amazing accomplishments. So to do this in two hours, it was necessary to invent scenes and dialogue that didn't really exist. If you want to know the true story, read the book, Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and the Untold Story of the Black Women Who Helped Win the Space Race by Margot Lee Shutterly. And if you want to know more than that, well, maybe you need to invent a time machine and go back. And even then, you probably won't get the whole story. I mean, you can't see inside characters' heads and whatnot. You know, no matter how accurate anybody tries to get in a biography, there's always going to be some fiction there. But in this case, this is a fictional story based on true events, as all biopics are. And that's the question that always runs through my head when I watch a film like this. Are the filmmakers, the writers, director, actors, and producers giving the audience the best they can do to honor the real people, or are they just trying to sell tickets? Usually, I think, it's a combination. So today, that's what I'll explore. So this is one of those films that have been on my list of films to watch since it came out in 2016. It's odd that I didn't, because I watch almost everything there is about the early days of the space race. Anything about NASA and the voyage to the moon is usually on my list, so I can't really explain why I hadn't. To be fair, I rarely go to the theaters, and, and I usually only watch newer films when I happen to come by them while scrolling through one of my streaming services. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen that. And I also have to have the time to sit down and actually watch the film. So finally, seven years later, I watch Hidden Figures. And I am really glad that I watched this movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to thank the person who suggested it, and, well, that's me, I, I suggested it, so, uh... You know, the first thing that impressed me about this film was how quickly they got to Catherine, Dorothy, and Mary's story and their work at NASA. There's a few minutes at the beginning to let us know just how brilliant Catherine Johnson was from birth, and then we cut to them on their way to the space agency. And I thought the film did a wonderful job of balancing both their work and home lives, but also the whole civil rights issue that were happening at the time. The film doesn't constantly hit you over the head with the problems the African Americans were going through at the time. Again, it focuses on these women, a celebration of them and their accomplishments. Now briefly, here's the story. We have Mary Jackson, who's assigned to the Space Capsule Heat Shield team. She immediately makes herself known when she recognizes a design flaw. The leader of the team, Karl Zielinski, who is based on the real-life Kazimir Charnetsky, and I hope I pronounced that right, who encourages her to become a NASA engineer. A person with engineer's mind should be an engineer. You can't be a computer the rest of your life. Mr. Zelensky, I'm a Negro woman. I'm not going to entertain the impossible. And I'm a Polish Jew whose parents died in a Nazi prison camp. Now I'm standing beneath a spaceship that's going to carry an astronaut to the stars. I think we can say, we are living the impossible. Let me ask you, if you were a white male, would you wish to be an engineer? I wouldn't have to. I'd already be one. Of course, being black and a woman, she figures it's impossible, but eventually fights to get permission to attend an all-white high school to get her college degree. 
Dorothy Vaughn acts as a supervisor to a group of black women without being given the pay or position of a supervisor. We need a supervisor, ma'am. We haven't had one since Ms. Jansen got sick. It's been almost a year. Things are working just fine as is. I'm doing the work of a supervisor. Well, that's NASA for you. She learns that this new fangled IBM computer is coming into service and will replace many of the human computers. She secretly takes a book from an all-white section of the library and teaches herself and then her co-workers Fortran, a computer language. She is eventually caught using the computer, but when it is learned that she knows what she's doing, she is promoted to supervisor of the programming department. Now, much of the film focuses on Katherine Johnson, who is a genius when it comes to numbers and analytic geometry. She gets assigned to Al Harrison's Space Task Group. She is the first black woman on the team. Your clearance. They've never had a colored in here before, Catherine. Don't embarrass me. Harrison gives her the job of checking the math of the other team members, which really upsets head engineer Paul Stafford. When she's giving documents to check, much of the information is redacted, blacked out. This makes it difficult for her to do her job. I cannot work on what I cannot see, Mr. Stafford. It's illegible. Those numbers have already been confirmed by two engineers in this department and myself. This is more or less a dummy check. But when she's able to solve a complex mathematical equation through these redacted documents, she becomes one of the most trusted and important people on the team. The film also goes into their home life, especially Catherine, who is a widow with three children. She meets and falls in love with a National Guard Lieutenant, Jim Johnson. Pastor mentioned you're a computer at NASA. What's that entail? We calculate the mathematics necessary to enable launch and landing for the space program. (laughs) Pretty heady stuff. Yes, it is. They let women handle that sort of... Johnson is originally skeptical about a woman with mathematical skills, but he comes around. Spoiler, they get married, and they would remain married until his death in 2019. Besides the story of the women and their amazing abilities, which is not an exaggeration in the film, what struck me was just how much math is involved when it comes to launching a person into space. Math such as what's shown in the film, is a total mystery to me. And the fact that people seem to be born with a mathematical gift is truly amazing. And speaking of that, I never knew that before there were big machines made by IBM, the term computer referred to people who could do amazing math. Space Test Group needs a computer, ASAP. Someone with a handle on analytic geometry. We can't fill that position out of the East Group. Permanent or temp? Everything's temporary, Dorothy. You have someone? Yes, ma'am. Catherine's a gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. I'll check her credentials. It's totally accurate in the film when they say we need computers. They're talking about people. Smart people they called computers. When the machines came around, those were referred to as electronic computers. It makes sense, right? You can compute complicated equations, so you are a computer. Ruth, what's the status on that computer? She's right behind you, Mr. Harrison.
Does she handle analytic geometry? Absolutely. And she speaks. Yes, sir, I do. Which one? Both. Geometry and speaking. As the real Katherine Johnson was fond of saying about her tenure at Langley, that it was a time when computers wore skirts. Anyway, the film starts out with these three women who are carpooling to work at NASA. Their car is broken down and they're trying to fix it when a policeman shows up. When he finds out that they work for NASA, he gives them an escort to work. Not a great place for three y'all be having car trouble. We didn't pick the place, officer. It picked us. You being disrespectful? No, sir. You have identification on me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're just on our way to work at Langley. NASA, sir. We do a great deal of the calculating, getting our rockets into space. All three of you? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes, officer. NASA? That's some. I had no idea they hired. There are quite a few women working in the space program. Here's the problem with that scene. These three ladies, Dorothy, Mary, and Catherine, were not close friends like they are portrayed in the film. They didn't ride to work together. In fact, they're often seen together at work and at home, but that's a total work of fiction. The lives of the three women did cross paths here and there, but not like shown in the film. That's because the timeline in the film is all mixed up. They condense events that happen over a long period of time down to just a couple of years. For instance, Catherine married for a second time in 1959 before the events in the film. Mary worked in the wind tunnel shown in the film in 1953. She became NASA's first black female aerospace engineer in 1959, again before the events in the film. In 1943, Dorothy began a 28-year career as a mathematician and programmer at Langley Research Center. Although, like in the film, she worked as a supervisor after the white supervisor passed away for years without being paid or given the title but she was promoted to the position of a supervisor again before the events in the film. Now this leads up to one of the most dramatic moments in the film. Catherine has to run a half mile or so a few times a day to use the colored bathroom. She's also forced to use an older coffee pot, not the really nice one that's meant for the white employees. When one day she is needed, but not at her desk, Al Harrison gets pissed off. When she returns, Al angrily wants to know what takes her so long every day just to use the bathroom. Where the hell have you been? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? Catherine can't handle it anymore and goes into a furious speech, a breakdown about all the things she has to go through every day. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, 
living off a of coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. After Catherine walks out of the room, Al walks over and removes the white-only sticker from the coffee pot. Next, it cuts to Al using a crowbar to take down a sign above a bathroom that says Colored Ladies Bathroom. All right, that's a work of fiction. The truth is, while there were some bathrooms at Langley that were specified for whites only, it didn't matter to Catherine who used any bathroom she wanted. There were very few complaints, and when there were complaints, she just ignored them and kept using the bathrooms. And apparently she never got into any trouble for doing so. The fact is, segregation ended in Langley in 1958. So where does this come from? Well, actually, it happened to Mary Jackson in 1953. She was on temporary assignment in the east area of Langley, an area she wasn't familiar with, and she had to walk quite a long ways to find a bathroom that she could use. And I have no idea if she had a breakdown like Catherine does in the movie. The scene has been heavily criticized as it puts a white man in the knight in shining armor role. Theodore Melfi, the director and co-screenwriter, responded by saying... There needs to be white people who do the right thing. There needs to be black people who do the right thing. And somebody does the right thing. And so who cares who does the right thing as long as the right thing is achieved? Anyway, was there really that kind of segregation at NASA at that time? Well, not according to the real Katherine Johnson, who said in an interview with WHRO-TV that, I didn't feel the segregation at NASA because everyone was there doing research. You had a mission and you worked on it. It was important to you to do your job and play bridge at lunch. I didn't feel any segregation. I knew it was there, but I didn't feel it. Still, the bathroom scene upsets a lot of people, but I think it's more of a feel-good moment that the filmmakers probably thought the film needed. Like I said, the filmmakers were trying to put a lot into two hours. They were trying to cram as many events as they could of these women's lives into a two-year period. While during the period of this film, these events might not have happened, the three, of course, did experience a lot of racism in their lives, and the filmmakers, I think, just wanted to reflect that while keeping to their time period. And to the film's credit... The accomplishments of all three of these people were not exaggerated. Katherine Johnson, for instance, had a love of numbers from a very early age. She said in an interview in 2018 about math, It's just there. You can't do anything without it. It's in everything. I like to work problems. If you do your best, nobody can ask you to do it over again. I never had to repeat what I did. I mean, she graduated high school at 14 and college at 18. There are many dramatic scenes within the movie that actually happened. Catherine did convince them to let her into a briefing meeting, and she did use old math to figure out how to bring the space capsule back to Earth in the right spot. You know, I could spend probably hours nitpicking this and that, this happened, this didn't happen, but whatever. I do need to talk about the end, and this is a spoiler, so if you haven't seen it, I believe it's on Paramount+, Plus. go watch it now. But the events did happen, but not like shown in the film. 
The IBM's been spot on up to this point, John, but we'll run it again, see what it comes up with. Look, I'm gonna be honest with you, Al. When I fly, I fly the machine. And right now, it seems like this machine's flying me. We're on the same page, John. Our guys are on it. Let's get the girl to check the numbers. The girl? Yes, sir. You mean Catherine? Yes, sir. The smart one. I mean, she says they're good. I'm ready to go. All right, we'll get into it. Roger. While John Glenn did ask for the girl to check the IBM computer's numbers, I don't think it was because of a discrepancy in the numbers, like shown in the film, but more because there was a general mistrust of these newfangled contraptions. Many would ask, how did that machine come up with these numbers? And we'd feel a lot better if one of our human calculators could do the work. Oh, and it didn't happen while Glenn was waiting to blast off in a spacesuit. This actually happened days before, as it took Catherine quite a long time to do the math. The thing is, I really enjoyed this film, and one must look at it as not an historical document, but a celebration of these three astounding ladies. Although you won't find her name in any articles written by mainstream media at the time of Shepard's flight, some in the black press took note. A week after Shepard's flight, reporter James Hicks wrote in the New York Amsterdam News, At NASA, they are loud in their praise of a young West Virginia-born Negro girl who has prepared a science paper that was not only a key document in the flight of Commander Shepard into outer space, but which will actually become the key document if and when we are able to put an astronaut into orbit. There was no questioning Catherine's calculations, which were always spot on, but there were always plenty of questions in her. We were working on um, space problems and they just got shifted to me by some means. And uh, they would have briefings among the engineers as to what they were going to do next. And I asked to go to, to one of them. Well, the women don't go to the briefings. I said, is there a law? Mm, let it go. So I went to all the meetings that the men had. And I knew what they would what I was doing all the time and where they were going and so on. I think my favorite scene, and I could have picked out many, was when Catherine realizes that she can read what is in the redacted document by holding it up into the light. Before, she tries to explain that she can't confirm what she can't read, but her words are ignored. Eventually, she goes up to a chalkboard and does some amazing calculations that is so exact and so full of classified information that she gets accused of being a spy. What's her name? Catherine Goebel. Are you a spy, Catherine? Am I what? I said, are you a Russian spy? No, sir. I'm not Russian. She's not Russian, sir. All right, then we have nothing to lose here. Give her everything she needs to work on Shepard's trajectories without redaction. Are we clear on that? Uh, are we sure about this? What's the issue, Paul? You heard her. She's not a spy. I, I, I just don't think it's a good idea. Uh, you know what I think is a good idea? Darker ankle. 
Now, I don't know if this is a real piece of history or not. I didn't get to that part in the book yet, but I have my doubts. I mean, logically, if she was a spy, why would she point suspicion at herself by writing classified information on a chalkboard for everybody to see? Surely the brains at NASA couldn't be that stupid, right? But it's a fun scene. There's also a scene in which Mary, in an effort to go to an all-white Hampton High School to take college courses, goes to court. She wins over the local judge by appealing to a sense of history, allowing her to attend night classes. The point is, Your Honor, no Negro woman in the state of Virginia has ever attended an all-white high school. It's unheard of. Yeah, unheard of. And before Alan Shepard sat on top of a rocket, no other American had ever touched space. And now he will forever be remembered as the U.S. Navy man from New Hampshire, the first to touch the stars. And I, sir, I plan on being an engineer at NASA, but I can't do that without taking them classes at that all-white high school. And I can't change the color of my skin. So I have no choice but to be the first, which I can't do without you, sir. It's a very funny and charming scene, but again, not real. Mary, in reality, did ask the city of Hampton for an exception to go to an all-white school, and it was accepted. The real Mary did, however, complete her engineering courses and earn a promotion to engineer in 1958. Of course, that again was before the events in the book. The film stars Taraji P. Henson as Katherine Goble Johnson. I will have you know, I was the first Negro female student at West Virginia University Graduate School. On any given day, I analyze the manometer levels for air displacement, friction, and velocity, and compute over 10,000 calculations by cosine, square root, and lately analytic geometry by hand. Taraji was born in 1970, and she's been acting since 1998. She was in the 2000 film The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle as a left-wing student. Her other films include Hustle and Flow in 2005, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button in 2008, and Think Like a Man in 2011. She's received nominations for the Academy Award, the SAG Award, the Critics' Choice Award, and Screen Actor Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast Member in a Motion Picture. She was also in the TV shows The Division and Boston Legal. She's just fantastic in this film. She's both gorgeous and believable. I think the real Katherine Johnson couldn't have been happier with her playing the role. Octavia Spencer plays Dorothy. I'm with the West Computing Group. Dorothy Vaughn, sir. Well, this is a very delicate piece of equipment. I'm sorry, sir. I'm just trying to be helpful. Octavia was also born in 1970 and is very accomplished. She made her screen debut in A Time to Kill in 1996 and for years played parts with characters whose names were like Women in Elevator, Nurse Bee, and Check-In Girl. But it was in 1910 when she played Minnie Jackson in The Help that her career really took off. She won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for that role. Since then, she's been in Snowpiercer in 2013, Fruitvale Station also in 2013, and The Shape of Water in 2017. She's also done a ton of television work, including a reoccurring role in the CBS sitcom Mom from 2013 to 2015. And she's great, too. 
She's one of those actors that can convey a lot of emotion with just a subtle facial expression, and I love that. Mary Jackson is played by Janelle Monet. I believe there are special circumstances to be considered. What would warrant a colored woman attending a white school? May I approach your bench, sir? Now, me not being a rap or hip-hop guy, I did not know that not only is she an actor, but she's also a singer and rapper. I probably should have heard of her because, according to Wikipedia, she's won a Screen Actor Guild Award, a Children's and Family Emmy Award, in addition to being nominated for eight Grammy Awards. Monet has been honored with an ASCPA Vanguard Award, as well as the Rising Star Award in 2015 and the Trailblazer of the Year Award in 2018 from Billboard's Women in Music. Boston City Council named October 16, 2013 as Janelle Monet Day in recognition of her artistry and activism. Okay, I'm a lame old man who doesn't keep up. Apparently, she's one of those singers who occasionally does a film or appears on TV. But again, in Hidden Figures, she totally sold me on believing in her character. She's one of those people that I think proves the universe is unfair. I mean, not only is she very attractive, but she also can sing and act. Come on, universe, save a little of that for somebody else. Now, in the film, we also have Kevin Costner as L. Harrison. What I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking everyone in that room, all my geniuses, is to look beyond the numbers. Costner has had his highs and lows in his long career. He got a little big-headed, I believe, during the Waterworld Robin Hood period, but since then has really done some good work. And for what he's given here, he does a great performance, I think. Like I said earlier, his character is not a real person and seems to be, I don't know, a little too good to be true, though I could be wrong. The part of Vivian Michelle was played by Kirsten Dunst. You know, Dorothy, despite what you may think, I have nothing against y'all. I know. You know, I didn't even know that she was in this film. I mean, I don't even remember the last time I saw her in a film. I was distracted for a moment, trying to figure out where I knew her from. Oh, that's the little girl from Interview with a Vampire, I told myself. Looking at her IMDb, it seems she's been working pretty steady since then. So what do I know? Like I said, I don't go to the movies that often. Nor do I watch a lot of current films, so that's on me. But she's fine in the film. I don't think she's given a lot to work with. Though her final scene is pretty emotional when she finally addresses Dorothy as Mrs. Vaughn. And then there's Jim Parsons as Paul Stanford. The Pentagon briefings are not for civilians. It requires the highest clearance. I feel like I'm the best person to present my calculations. You're not going to let this go, are you? No, I am not. And, and she is a woman. There is no protocol for a woman Okay, I get meetings. that part, Paul. Like both Dunstan Costner's characters, he's fictional. Parsons, of course, is famous for playing Sheldon Cooper on the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory. I have to be honest with you, I've never seen this show. But he won all types of awards for his part, so he must be good on it. And he does wonderful as the man who can't handle a black woman at NASA. Again, it's not overdone, but he does come off as a jerk, and he does seem to come around eventually. Or maybe not, I don't know. I wasn't sure. There's a charming scene in which he explains the problem of taking a space capsule out of Earth orbit and bringing it back to Earth to a specific spot. 
Catherine keeps asking him questions, and he respectfully answers her. Now, getting it back down, that's the math we don't know. Yes, Catherine? So the capsule will spin around the Earth forever because there's nothing to slow it down? That's right. Slowing it down at precisely the right moment, at precisely the right amount, that's the task. Yes, Catherine? So it needs to move from an elliptical orbit to a parabolic orbit. Yes. That was a scene I actually quite liked a lot. Mahershala Ali plays the military officer Jim Johnson, who at first offends Catherine, being dismissive as to what she does, but eventually he romances and marries her. Here's another actor who is very accomplished that I should have heard of, but I hadn't. According to Wiki, he has received two Academy Awards, a Golden Globe Award, and a Primetime Emmy Award. Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2019 and in 2020. The New York Times ranked him among the 25 greatest actors of the 21st century. So what's wrong with me? Um, His two Academy Awards are for Best Supporting Actor, one for Moonlight, and the other one for Green Book. Again, another great choice for the movie. In fact, I think all the actors chosen for this movie were, were pretty damn good. So, like I said, the historical accuracy of the film is, well, lacking in many areas. I found an interview with NASA's chief historian, Bill Barry. He was talking about the 1983 film The Right Stuff, and he said, From an atmospheric perspective, I enjoyed The Right Stuff. From a history perspective, it's cringeworthy. He went on to talk about how to put a real-life story into an entertaining movie. To be able to tell a story in a way that the audience can understand and make it entertaining enough for them to be able to watch, I think scriptwriters have to be creative and find a balance between telling the exact historic details and delivering a story that is both interesting and gets the message across, he explained. He said that he and others were offered input on the script for Hidden Figures. They wanted to get the atmosphere of the film correct. Like anything based on real-life events, there are some temporal things that, as a historian, are like, uh, that didn't really happen like that. But I think the movie is true to the story of the main characters. On a whole, I was very happy with the outcome. The film began when the book Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race by Margot Lee Shutterly had not even been finished yet. Shutterly said of the film, For better or for worse, there is history. There is a book, and then there's a movie. Timelines have to be conflated, and there were composite characters. For the most part, people who have seen the movie have already taken that as a literal fact. The director of the film, Ted Melfi, said, I was painfully aware and very careful on how we portrayed the women and the things they accomplished. For author Sheddingly, she wanted people to understand that there's a lot more people involved in the real story than shown in the film. She said, Even though Katherine Johnson, in the role, was a hero, there were many others that were required to do the kinds of tests and checks to make Glenn's mission to come to fruition. But I understand you can't make a movie with 300 characters. It's simply not possible. 
She also said of the film, I loved it. I mean, really, honestly. I was crying. I was laughing. I was like, what happens next? Does Glenn make it back home? Of course, there's going to be people who appreciate this movie and don't appreciate this movie. And for that, I'm going to turn to the IMDB user comments. Loof27, L-O-U-E-P-H 27, called the movie a must-see and gave it the full 10 stars. He or she wrote, Now that is a movie that everyone should see. It relates the life of three women, but in their tracks the lives of millions of blacks who have contributed to the American culture and success. The cast is outstanding. The music is off the hook. The cinematography spotless, dreamlike, the right combination of colors and lights, a beauty. It also shows that intelligence connects beyond gender and race. I'm referring to the roles, one, played by Kevin Costner, and two, the part of Glenn Allen that shows that true intelligence fosters tolerance and brings the human race forward. Well said there, except do people still use the expression off the hook? S. Hicks, too, gave it eight stars. He or she had this to say. Entertaining and disheartening all at the same time. Disheartening because of the horrible racial prejudice shown. Hard to believe that things were like they were. Heartening because of the undoubted success these three women made of their lives. And of course, they are a representation of what countless others did. My one criticism of the film is I find it hard to believe that some of the situations presented actually happened. Did the Costner character really not see the kettle marked colored? Was it really a trek to the bathroom? But this can only be a minor criticism and surely represents the prevailing attitudes of the days in parts of the USA. And let's be honest, still exists in many other parts of the world. In this sense, the film is a salutary reminder of how insidious prejudice can be. And entertaining, moving, and sobering film. First of all, you might want to listen to this podcast and then you'd know about the hard-to-believe situations, but also you mention prejudices that still exist in other parts of the world today. <laughs> I've got some news. They still exist in America today. Anyway. B. Nestor gave it only five stars. He labeled his history dumbed down. And I'm only going to read a few segments because his comment goes on and on and on. Ever since The Ugly Duckling of Hans Christian Andersen, the formula has been predictable. A member of a despised minority is grudgingly admitted into a previously exclusive activity. Will the minority figure excel in his new position or will he, she fail miserably, justifying the prejudices of the ruling class? Telling you the answer would be a spoiler, so you'll just have to guess it for yourselves, but it's not too difficult. In Hidden Figures, all the whites are bigots, except for John Glenn and one department head, and all the blacks are hard-working, clean, patriotic, moral wonders. This film is dumbed down to a junior high school level. The heroine, a mathematically gifted black widow, has managed to stay chaste and raise three perfect children while handling a difficult job under trying conditions. The other characters are no more believable. <laughs> Enough of you, B. Nestor. 
the part of Katherine Johnson was portrayed very accurately, so I don't know what you're talking about. Now, I'm not going to read any of the one-star reviews, because many of them have titles like Politically Correct Nonsense, Historical Revisionism, Evil Propaganda. And many ripped the film because it's not an actual true story. To all the people who gave this film a bad review because it's not historically accurate, I have this to say. Hold on, I have to get away from the microphone. It's a movie! Let me say that one more time. It's a movie! Got it? There are many books, interviews, documentaries out there that are available if you want to know the true story. I like the music in the film. There's a lot of cool tunes from the day, but not tunes that I was really familiar with. Summertime in Virginia was an oven. All the kids eating ice cream with their cousins. I was studying while you was playing the dozens. Don't act like you was there when you wasn't. Running from the man. Now, the real Mary Jackson died in 2005 at the age of 83. Dorothy Vaughn passed away in 2008, and she was 98. And Catherine Goebel Johnson made it to the year 2020, living long enough to see her recognized for her accomplishments. And she also saw this film. She appeared at the 89th Academy Awards and received a standing ovation from the audience. When she talked about this film in an earlier interview, she said it was done real well. The three leading ladies did an excellent job of portraying us. Betty, you know what this meteor could mean to science. It could mean actual advances in the field of science. Is this one of your Earth jokes? May God have mercy on us all. You don't know the lost skeleton of Cadavra, but you will. You will! A little bit before I go. If you've ever seen the papers that Catherine worked on, papers with the titles like Mid-course and approach guidance requirements for simplified onboard control of moon-to-earth trajectories. They are so complex with mathematics it makes one's brain hurt. It astounds me that anybody can think like that. It's just beyond me. Now, if you want to see this movie, it is available on Disney+. Plus. I think I, I mentioned a different channel earlier in the show, and I, I apologize for getting it wrong. Also, the book, Hidden Figures, can be found on archive.org, and it's available for free reading if you have an account. Now, if you have any thoughts on Hidden Figures, Katherine Johnson, or anything else I talked about in the show, why don't you send me an email? <laughs> in fact, you can send me an email for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. I'm at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. You can also use my Facebook page, it's called Celluloid Days, and a Twitter page, it's at celluloid underscore days. 
Next week is the second week of the month. That means we're going to talk about one of my favorite films. And this film is from 2001, and it's called The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, written and directed by Larry Blamere. It's a parody film of those 1950s sci-fi movies. Most of you, I don't think, have ever heard of this one. But anyway... Now, before I leave, I have one more request. Could you give me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast? I'd be forever grateful. Hey, thank you for listening. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back next week. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen.